Thank you for listening to the Soul City Church podcast. Be sure to follow us on our Facebook and Instagram at Soul City Church. For more information, visit us on our website, soulcitychurch.com. Well, hello, everybody. It's fun to hear you all chatting about this question. How many of you think the best way to go is a deep fried turkey? Raise your hand. Okay, I have never tried it. I heard, I heard it's really great. How many of you, like me, cook your turkey in a bag? Anybody cook the turkey in a bag? Yeah, moist and delicious, right? Isn't it good? Nobody's with me on that. Okay. Um, everybody has their thoughts on types of turkey. Maybe you want organic, or maybe, like my family, you're all about butterball. And then we could compare notes on dessert. Okay, so you're gonna choose in a second between pumpkin pie and pecan pie. How many are pumpkin pie people? Oh yeah, I've had so much in the last few days. How about pecan pie? Very good. With or without whipped cream is another, is another subject. You know, uh, many of you are new with Soul City and I wanna let you know that many of the regulars are doing a 21-day season. It's a fast um, from something in their lives in order to draw closer to God during this season. And if you chose food or desserts, you want me to take the pictures of food down immediately, and I'm with you, I, I get it. But maybe without recognizing it, right on Thanksgiving, we did a bit of comparing. You might have compared to other Thanksgivings you've had in the past, or you might have noticed how someone cooked a certain food, because you and I are creatures of comparison. To be human is to compare. It begins very, very early in our homes, usually with sibling rivalry. Siblings compete for the love and attention of their parents. They assume, I only had two, but they still assume that it's in short supply and there won't be enough for them. One of the most common statements from my girls when they were little was, it's not fair. And I'm told by only children that they're not immune to comparison. They might compare to a cousin or a neighbor, or like all of us, to people on television and social media. We cannot completely avoid comparison, but we can absolutely lessen its grip on us. Because you see, comparison isn't just this casual, wimpy sort of sin. It's much more serious. Theodore Roosevelt once said, comparison is the thief of joy. It robs us of our joy. Today we're going to see that when we compare, we can actually take one of two paths. The most common option is to take a turn to allow our comparison to become envy. And at the end of this message, I promise you, I'm gonna explore an alternative path with you, a path that can lead to life and joy. But let's start with envy. This progression towards envy is deadly for our souls. In James 3, verse 16, look at this verse. This is outstanding. It says, "For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder and every evil practice. One writer I read said that envy is the dumbest of sins. He says it's dumb because it's not even fun. You know, most sins, there's a little short-term payoff, right? A little bit, something happening, but not with envy. It's just dumb. So in what areas do you find yourself most inclined to envy. Robert Bringle, who was a professor at Purdue University, said that we envy in areas where we feel the most insecure. And I know exactly where my area of envy is. It's in the domestic areas of life. You know, like cooking, gardening, home decorating, crafts, etc. 
I'm most likely to compare myself to people I call the Martha Stewarts. These are men and women who seem to effortlessly prepare gourmet meals. They make their own candles. They <laughs> upholster their own furniture. You know the type. I have several friends in this category. One woman I know did the whole plumbing job in her bathroom makeover all by herself. And then, many years ago, my only brother had the audacity to marry the ultimate Martha Stewart person. Her name is Tammy, and whenever I would visit their home as a young married person, I honestly would leave feeling a little bit depressed. I would see how beautifully her home was decorated like photos in a magazine, and I saw how adorably dressed her four children were, how she magically fed our huge extended family, and then literally, minutes later, it seemed like her kitchen was spotless. One Christmas, we showed up, and her table was just gorgeous, and I noticed how she made the seating assignments. Now, if you come to my house, I'll probably just say, I'll point, you know, you sit there, you sit there. Here's how she did it. She had our names baked in cursive writing gingerbread cookie style. <laughs> and then she tied it up with a little red velvet ribbon. I said, Tammy, you're killing me. <laughs> Now, this would be much easier if Tammy wasn't such a good person. She's a prayer warrior. She's amazingly kind. I can't even hate her. She's just like a really nice person. So I've been making some progress over the years, identifying and then owning this sin of envy. Now, however, I found myself in awe of my younger daughter, who received some genetic code from her grandmother and is a highly successful Martha Stewart herself. This is like a big cosmic joke in the universe to me. Recently, Johanna learned how to put a hood over her oven. She tiled her kitchen floor, along with a huge list of other remarkable DIY projects. Where did she come from, I ask you? So in what area do you most tend to envy? It'll be helpful in this message if you think about that. Is it other people's appearance or their career success? Maybe their income, their talents, their athletic ability? Could be their family or maybe their spiritual wisdom? You see, our envy is a sin that deeply angers God, and we're going to look at why. But first, we want to look at two Bible stories. One is in the Old Testament, and one is in the New Testament. And in each of these stories, we're going to find out that God is anger, angry at envy, and we're going to find out what's behind his anger. Okay? So first of all, we want to find an alternative path to envy when we compare. The one that I promised you leads to life and joy and peace. Our first Bible story is in the book of Numbers. It's on page 116 in the Bibles. If you're here in Soul City, you can grab one under the chair in front of you. Uh, we'll also put this on the screen for those of you online, or you can look at your Bibles at home. But I can't wait to dig into this story of siblings who compared and envied, leading to a terrible, terrible result. First, a little bit of background. Uh, Miriam is the older sister of both Aaron and Moses. And it's important to note that there's kind of an age gap there. So there's Miriam, then there's a few years gap, and then Aaron, and three years younger, the youngest, was Moses. This is a story where the younger sibling turns out to be a superstar. Does anybody have a younger sibling who has surpassed them in some way? I, I do. So we're going to pick up the story when the children of Israel have left Egypt, and they are wandering in the wilderness. All three of these siblings have played a leadership role with the people. So let's look at Numbers 12, verse 1. I'm going to make a few comments as we go. 
It says, Miriam and Aaron began to talk against Moses because of his Cushite wife, for he had married a Cushite. All right, let's pause here to dig just a little bit deeper. This story is filled with power dynamics. You're going to see that in just a moment. But there's also most likely a racist dynamic as well. Scholars tell us that Cush was in the ancient region of Northeast Africa, often identified with Ethiopia. And the term Ethiopian in Greek is actually translated black-skinned or burned skin. It's an overall term with people, for people with black skin. So Miriam and Aaron are taking issue with their brother marrying a Cushite, a black-skinned woman. But that is not all they're grumbling about. Let's continue in verse 2. Has the Lord spoken only through Moses, they asked? Hasn't he also spoken through us? And the Lord heard this. Now Moses was a very humble man, more humble than anyone else on the face of the earth. At once, the Lord said to Moses, Arian, and Miriam, come out to the tent of meeting, all three of you. God heard their comparison and their envy, and he calls a meeting. This would be very scary. Come here, you three, over here. I'm going to talk to you. They must have known that they were in deep trouble. So let's look at verse 4. So the three of them came out. Then the Lord came down in a pillar of cloud. He stood at the entrance to the tent and summoned Aaron and Miriam. When both of them stepped forward, he said, Listen to my words. When a prophet of the Lord is among you, I reveal myself to him in visions. I speak to him in dreams. But this is not true of my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my house. With him I speak face to face, clearly and not in riddles. He sees the form of the Lord. Why then, God asks, were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? The anger of the Lord burned against them, and he left them. Notice that God is so angry about their envy that he removes his presence from them. There is now distance between them because of their sin. Okay, verse 10. When the cloud lifted from above the tent, there stood Miriam, leprous like snow. Leprosy is a skin disease. Aaron turned toward her and saw that she had leprosy, and he said to Moses, Please, my Lord, do not hold against us the sin we have so foolishly committed. Do not let her be like a stillborn infant coming from its mother's womb with its flesh half eaten away. So Moses cried out to the Lord, Oh God, please heal her. God then decides that Miriam should go into quarantine for seven days before she could rejoin the community. You see, our, our envy not only distances us from God, but from each other. Now, I've been living with this story and really imagining how it must have felt to Miriam and to Aaron that their younger brother, the one who was more reluctant to go into leadership in the first place, he was very tentative, he was lacking in boldness, this Moses was being treated in such special ways by God. And both Miriam and Aaron had played significant roles themselves as leaders. Aaron had joined Moses in front of Pharaoh, demanding that God let the people go. He was designated by God as the high priest. He was the spiritual head of the whole nation. And Miriam was a prophetess and a worship leader. So it must have been very hard for them to see that Moses came into leadership with all this anxiety, and yet he was the one that God decided to treat in such special ways. They said to God, what about us? What about us? Why is he so special? They wanted to be equal to Moses. 
Now, I also wondered, and maybe you noticed this, why is Miriam the one struck with leprosy and not Aaron as well? Well, I learned that the Hebrew verb used to describe their initial complaints is in the feminine. So she was the instigator of the rebellion. She's the one who spoke up, and therefore she bore the brunt of God's anger. What is it about envy that ignites such anger in God? And what, what is the big deal? I think there's at least three reasons that God hates our envy. First, envy reveals a lack of trust in God. It's rooted in scarcity. It's the belief that I don't have enough. You know, when we're children and there's chocolate cake, we want to know if there's really enough for everybody and who's going to get the biggest piece. We believe there really is not enough time or space or money or talent or rewards or happiness for all of us. Where are you living with the belief that you don't have enough? How are you walking around with that thought? Where do you think you don't have enough? And how much do you think? What level would you have to get to to actually be satisfied? Author Lynn Twist says the sufficiency is not an amount. It's not about arriving at a certain point. Instead, it's an experience. It's a declaration. It's a deep knowing that there is enough and that we are enough. So if God called some of us to a little meeting, what do you think he would say? I think he would say, trust me. Will you trust me? There is more than enough for you. You have absolutely everything you need. Be content with what you do have and commit to living from the belief that each of us actually does have enough. This is a Root, deeply rooted kind of experience that we need to work towards to see that God will be our provider. Now, a second reason that God hates envy is that it devalues my worth. It devalues my worth. When God created each one of us uniquely in our mother's womb, he delighted over us. He assigned us certain strengths and also some limits. But when I envy, it's as though I'm shaking my fist at God and say, I don't like the way you made me. I want to be like someone else. Gordon MacDonald wrote that the soul cannot be healthy when one compares himself or herself to others. In fact, he says the soul dies a bit each time it is involved in a lifestyle that competes. When Miriam and Aaron displayed envy toward Moses, they thought God loved Moses more. But God simply chose to give Moses a different role. Here's a third reason that God hates envy. It creates distance in my relationships. We saw this with Miriam, right? God quarantined her outside the community for seven days. When our comparison turns to envy, it causes us to isolate. We don't feel joy or contentment or gratitude because envy is extremely divisive. When I was a young mom struggling with my envy of my sister-in-law, we couldn't have an authentic friendship. That changed when I confessed my sin to her and I asked her for her forgiveness. And Tammy was so gracious and she let me know that hospitality gifts come easily to her, but she says, I can't imagine speaking in front of people like you do. We have different gifts and I no longer allow envy to drive a wedge between us. All right, let's look at the New Testament story I promised you. This takes place over 1,500 years later and from the story of Miriam and Aaron. 
but there are incredibly common themes in these two stories, which you're about to see. If you ever wonder if this Bible, if this book is relevant to everyday life, these two stories are great examples of how God knows our human nature and about God's wisdom for all of us to grow. So I invite you to go to the Gospel of John. This is um, chapter 21, and it is on page 882 in the Bibles here at Soul City. Um, this story takes place on the beach after the resurrection of Jesus. The disciples had been out fishing, and they came to the shore, and Jesus had just cooked breakfast for them. Now think about that for a second. The Savior of the world is grilling them a great meal and serving them. After they ate, Jesus has a dialogue with Peter, and he's asking him three times if Peter loves him. This is a parallel to the three times Peter denied even knowing Jesus right before the crucifixion. Jesus is showing forgiveness here and mercy to Peter, and he tells him to feed his sheep. So let's pick up the account in verse 18 as Jesus talks to Peter. He says, I tell you the truth. When you were younger, you dressed yourself and you went where you wanted, where you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Then he said to him, follow me. Peter turned, he turned, and he saw that the disciple whom Jesus loved was following them. This was the one who had leaned back against Jesus at the supper and had said, Lord, who is going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he said, Lord, what about him? Jesus answered, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? You must follow me. Because of this, the rumor spread among the brothers that this disciple would not die. But Jesus did not say that he would not die. He only said, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? All right, there is so much going on in this story. First of all, you can tell from all the gospel accounts that these two guys, Peter and John, have distinctly different personalities. Amen. Peter was this bold, audacious leader, clearly an extrovert. And John, I think, was a quieter man, more intuitive, and he had a very close connection to Jesus. Now, I have to say, I find it a little funny that John wrote this gospel account. Okay, you with me here? He wrote it. And he refers to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. <laughs> kind of makes you wonder if there was a little competition and comparison going on between those two, you know, really all along. But when Jesus describes what will happen to Peter and how he will die, this must have been devastating to Peter. Tradition has it that Peter was crucified upside down. So Peter turns around and he sees John following and he says the ultimate words of comparison. What about him? Just like Miriam and Aaron. What about Moses? Why not us? My friend Nancy Ortberg says there is no way you can imagine the response of Jesus in this text without him displaying a tone of anger or at the very least, big frustration. Jesus looks right at Peter and he says, no matter what John's future holds, what is that to you? What is that to you? You must follow me. And God is delivering the very same identical message to Peter that he gave to Miriam and Aaron. Our creator declares that he is the one who makes the assignments. Amen. It's not for us to question or resent what other people receive. 
You know, in this season of my life, uh, I find myself occasionally longing for different assignments. I do a lot of coaching and some teaching, but sometimes I, I long for something else or I look over my shoulder at someone else. And there's a couple verses in Psalm 16 that have grounded me so much against the sin of envy. In fact, so much so that I've memorized them. We read there, Lord, you have assigned me my portion and my cup. You have made my lot secure. The boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Surely I have a delightful inheritance. God is the one who makes the assignments. He hands out the portions. So where do you need to come to a place of acceptance for the portion that God has assigned to you? Can you accept that God sees you? He sees you right this moment, and he says, I have enough for you. When I started working on this message, I initially thought that my challenge to all of us would be to stop comparing. Just stop it. <laughs> and then I got honest with myself, and I realized, you know what? It's human to compare. The title for this series and this date is just right. It's not no comparison. It's less comparison because we're probably never gonna to get to the point where we never compare, but we can do less of it. One way to do less is to expose ourselves less often to situations that seem to stir up yeah. comparison in you. Like, don't go to a reunion, that's probably a bad idea. <laughs> um, but certainly like social media. Uh, my 21-day fast has been to get off social media, and it's been a break from scrolling through images, seeing the spectacular lives everybody else has, it's been really healthy for me to take a pause from that exposure. In about two weeks or so, any day now, I'm gonna become a grandmother for the first time. <laughs> Woohoo! Yes. And as our daughter Samantha and her husband will prepare to welcome a little one in the world, I have deep concerns for how my daughter might be affected by social media as a new mom. When I was a young mom, I had enough trouble comparing myself to other moms, and social media wasn't even a thing. I can't imagine how much I would have felt less than with all of the super moms out there and their amazing Pinterest ideas and their adorable family photos. While there's much we can learn through social media, for some of us, it would be important, I think, and healthy for our soul to limit our scrolling especially if envy is an issue for you. Now, I promised that I would give you an alternative path to envy. Okay, so here we are at the place of comparison, right? We're doing less of it, but we still occasionally compare. We can all too easily take the path towards envy, and we've seen already how deadly of a choice that is. It robs us of joy and contentment. So what is the other option? We're right here comparing what if we turned towards emulation and celebration? Amen. Emulation and celebration. First of all, let's talk about what it means to emulate. To emulate is to take our admiration of someone. You compare and you have this admiration for someone and you want to be inspired to resemble that person, to work towards what they have or how they're living. Now, this isn't always an option. Some of you are a bit ahead of me. Let's say you're a short person and you compare yourself to a tall person. You can't really emulate unless you're female and you wear spike heels or something, but we can't change some of our physical attributes. We can't change our skin color, we can't change our eye color, 
But here's the really good news. We can emulate character all day long. We can compare ourselves to another person's generosity or to their courage, to their resilience or their kindness or their joy, their patience, their wisdom, their discipline. And we can seek to grow in that area ourselves. What if we transformed our envy to emulation? Now, even in situations where we cannot emulate, we can always celebrate. I have chosen over time to translate my envy of Martha Stewart types into a spirit of celebration, that someone has such remarkable gifts. And I delight in my daughter Johanna's DIY skills. I marvel that I'm related to her. It's just amazing. And that she's so skilled in that arena. When we watch world-class Olympic athletes coming up here in February, we can either get sucked into the sin of envy for their 0% body fat and their outstanding talent, or, or we can celebrate the wonders of their skills and maybe be inspired to be a little more disciplined physically ourselves. And when we encounter any human being who we can tell is more like Jesus than we are in any respect, we can celebrate that person and be inspired to resemble Jesus more ourselves. You know, in the wonderful little devotional book that our Pastor Jeannie prepared for us for this series, if you're following it, you're gonna come up on an entry this week on less comparison. And there Jeannie includes a verse from Galatians in the message version. It says, make a careful exploration of who you are and the work you have been given and then sink yourself into that. Don't be impressed with yourself. Don't compare yourself to others. Each of you must take responsibility for doing the creative best you can with your own life, with your own life. During the colder months, I often go to a local YMCA to an indoor track. And there's three lanes of this track and there's a sign up that says, you know, slower traffic, stay on the inside lane if you're walking or jogging or whatever. And sometimes I'll be in that middle lane and I'm just sort of jogging along and a young guy who's like a speeding bullet will pass me. And I will think, oh my goodness, and I'll compare myself to him and I'll think, I don't want him to lap me a second time. I, I better, you know, pick up the pace. And then in the inside lane, there's this group of retired guys that I know and they like to amble along and really I think they think it's coffee time. I mean, they're not really... There's no sweat happening anywhere, you know. They're just talking to each other. And if I wanted to, I could compare myself and my speed to them, which is kind of ridiculous. In either direction, it's ridiculous because it's all about our frame of reference, right? So instead, God invites us all to stay in our lane and focus on him. Stop our incessant turning around saying, what about him? What about her? Instead, say, what about me? What is mine to do? Our God has made the assignments. So let's fix our gaze on him and finish the race that he's marked out for us in our lane. Let's compare ourselves less to everybody else and rid ourselves of envy. Just get rid of that sin as best we can. Emulate where possible and always celebrate. 
focus on all that we have and all that we have to be grateful for, especially this Thanksgiving weekend. So much. You're breathing, right? You got up this morning, you had breath, you probably had something to eat. You have a place, a roof over your heads. We're already way ahead of the majority of people in this world. And we need to express our gratitude and contentment for the portion that God has assigned to us. Whatever we've been given, it is enough. So we have a few moments. I'd just like to lead you in a guided prayer. Just bow your heads and you might want to open your hands in your lap just as a symbol of God I'm surrendering and I'm receiving from you. And pray along with me as I pray this prayer. Gracious Heavenly Father, giver of all good gifts, we are sorry for how many times we've wasted our energy turning over our shoulder and saying, what about him? What about her? We confess our sin of envy. And God, we pray that you would help us to translate it or transform it into a spirit of emulation and celebration. Thank you for being the divine assigner of portions. God, you have the ultimate wisdom and you have assigned us our portion. Help us now to stay in our lane and fix our gaze on you. May we look towards you, Heavenly Father, because you are our provider. You love us with a reckless love. You pursue us and you say that you are enough and that we have enough. And for that, we are deeply grateful this day. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.